You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 196 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? What's happening in our world? Our world is, our world is, well, you know, it's a relatively calm sort of a place in our world at the moment. I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, well, well, when I say calm, I mean, I'm working on my, on my manuscript and I got not a single thing done over the weekend. So I'm going to have to work very hard on my manuscript this week. And, nice. um, Oh, I, you know what I am doing is I'm planning a giveaway. On, oh, uh, yes. This is exciting news. I, yes. I, I, I'm planning a giveaway and it's going to be through my newsletter. Are you newsletter. giving away I'm not giving away Procrasti Pup. I could not give away my writing companion. Um, no, what I'm giving away is a signed copy of the Book of Secrets, which is the first book oh. in the Adaban Cipher, a signed copy of the first book in the Mapmaker Chronicles series, and are you ready for it, Val? Oh, this is I'm, are you ready for my giveaway, Val? <laughs> I'm so ready, Al. <laughs> um I'm giving away, and I'm going to put, there'll be a link in the show notes to an image of this particularly spectacular item. I'm giving away a, a limited edition Mapmaker Chronicles cap. Now, these wow. are very, very special. There are only 11 of them in existence. I was given one for my birthday by my lovely husband, and I have then gone and had 10 more made. There will only ever be 10. I'm not going to go into production of them, and I'm just going to use them for, you know, special prizes for my special people. Um, so, I, I'm, and it's open worldwide. So if you are, you know, listening to me or to us from the US or from Lithuania or from any of those other places that the Mapmaker Chronicles has gone, UK, hello, waving at you, um, then you can also enter. So, uh, but you have to be, uh, signed up to receive my newsletter to enter because it's going to the the uh, giveaway is going to be through my newsletter for my special peeps. So I'd love to see you on that list. Where do we? Where do people sign up for your newsletter? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> do you love the way she does that? She just keeps me on track, people, doesn't she? <laughs> um, you can sign up for my newsletter at alisontait.com, a double l i s o n t a i t dot com forward slash newsletter. I love it. And let me assure everyone, I guarantee you that several years from now, when Alison is, you know, a bazillion selling author uh, in 139 countries, you will be able to put that cap on eBay and it will probably fetch you an inordinate sum of money because it is rare. There's only... 11 in the world, I believe. And they're very stylish, I'll have you say. I'll have you. They are a very, very stylish cap. 
and uh, I wear mine with pride, but only when the boys aren't with me because Book Boy has decided that me wearing my Mapmaker Chronicles cap is so uncool. It's not funny. So it's okay. Uncool. It's okay if he wears it, and it's okay if my husband, the builder, wears it, and right. it's okay if Book Boy Junior wears it. But it is not okay for me to wear it. So there you go. There's I teen see. logic for you, right there. All right. Well, there you mm-hmm. go. Well, so I'm maybe sure. I'm, I'm sure that whoever wins it is going to look cool in it and Bookboy will approve. But, you know, you've got to be in it to win it, so sign up to Alison's newsletter. And you get, what is it, a signed copy of the Mapmaker Chronicles 1. A signed copy of the Mapmaker Chronicles, a signed copy of the the new book, the first book in the um, Adaban Cipher series, The Book of Secrets, which is out on the 12th of September, and a limited edition, The Mapmaker Chronicles cap. Very stylish. Okay. Now, we also want to invite everyone to the new Facebook group for podcast listeners. So all you need to do while you're in Facebook is search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and we'd love to have you in there. It's free to join and it's really cool to be able to connect with listeners but also for listeners to be able to connect with each other. And I loved seeing some photos from Phoebe Williams and Mark Keenan who posted about winning the book that we had in a a giveaway recently, How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. And that goes to show you these giveaways are real. Real people win them each week. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to share with you my favourite post of the week in the So You Want to Be a Writer Facebook group. And it goes to Teresa Benitos who shared that little picture of the smiling gecko because now I am just – so there's this gorgeous little – uh, video of a gecko smiling and it's and on the and she's captioned it me when I hear Valerie ask Al so are you ready for the word of the week Al and I just and now I'm going to hear those words and all I'm going to see is the whole podcast community out there smiling at me like a gecko <laughs> oh my it's god so thank you so much for that Teresa you totally made my day with that one <laughs> I loved it too. Yeah, it's awesome. Now we want to give a shout out to Ian Harrison 74 who kindly left us a review on iTunes and he said, come for the tips, stay for the banter. And his review says, it's like an improvised sitcom. Goodness me. (laughs) These ladies obviously know one another well, yet crack each other up consistently as well as the listener. Interviews are insightful, full of great tips and entertaining. Thanks so much, Val and Al. Oh, there you go. Thank thank you you. so much, Ian Harrison74. Really appreciate it. We do crack each other up. We've been cracking each other up for many, many years now, haven't we, Val? But if other listeners have uh, 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, that would be awesome and we'd be really grateful because it helps us in the rankings. Now, the other thing before we get on to the world of publishing and writing this week that we wanted to mention is, as we said at the start of the episode, this is episode 196 and Alison and I realised that episode 200, like our our bicentenary, is coming up. Very, very soon. We are getting so old. We We must be like a thousand and seven in podcast years. Podcast years, yes, that's right. And uh, we're we're, going to think of a way to celebrate because 
We do record this episode living in different places, but, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll figure out a way that we can, there could be champagne involved, it could be the first drunk episode. (laughs) No. Given given the time that we normally actually record this thing, I'm thinking champagne would be a not very good idea. But anyway... Oh, there's Whatever. a first time for everything, Al. That's it's, it's true. It could be fun. Don't don't just brush it off like that. Anyway, okay, I won't. I won't brush it aside. Yeah, I'll work on her, everyone. <laughs> so what we've realised that for two hundred, almost two hundred episodes now, we have been talking about all the things that we want to talk about. <laughs> But um, we wanted to make sure that moving forward, we also um, talk about things that you like and that you wanted to, us to talk about. So we have created a survey, but this isn't just any other survey. This is a oh. survey to time us with our 200th episode. Now, I tried to link the 200 somehow, but I couldn't quite, so I came close. If you do this survey, at the end of the survey, we're going to give you this as a thank you for being such fantastic listeners. We're going to give you twenty dollars. Da da da. <laughs> twenty dollars. Well, twenty dollars. Are we off. mailing it out or what? <laughs> no, not quite. I don't think that's legal, actually. But I we're going to give you a twenty dollar promo code for you to use on any Australian Writers Centre course, and all the details are, you know, in the survey, so you can have a look there. Um, and you can. And some courses are only eighty five dollars, so that's actually a significant amount off. So make sure that you do the survey. We hope you enjoy doing the survey. It's not that long, but it asks you some questions that really help us work out what you like best out of the podcast and um, what you want to hear more of and who you want to hear from, like authors you would like us to interview. So go to writerscenter.com.au slash podcast survey. That's writercentercomau slash podcast survey and you need to get to the end of the survey and then you'll get your $20 voucher. So we hope that you enjoy that gift from us to you. So I'm a little bit nervous about it, oh, I just have to say. Yes. go on. I'm, go I'm on. really go. concerned that the word of the week is going to like be the number one thing that people love about this podcast and I'm going to have to listen to you tell me that for the rest of my life. I should have done it so that if you voted the word of the week as the favourite thing that you get $30. You oh, can't do that. That's like incentive. <laughs> That's just rude. Seriously. Anyway, I'm just saying, people, that if you like want a lot more word of the week, then you should totally make it number one. <laughs> There's That's only it. ever one word of the week. <laughs> you could do a special episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, I could do like a compilation best of oh, word of the week. No. That's 52 good. words of the week. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that in the Christmas holidays or something. Oh, All right, stop. so let's move on to a story that has been taking the writing and publishing world by storm this week, Ooh. or it's certainly causing a lot of conversation, I think, and that is the story about uh, a certain YA book that supposedly bought its way into the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Now, did you hear about this, Al? I did hear about it. I actually watched it play out on Twitter to start with and I was all like, wow, this is interesting. And then I went and, you know, did some further research on it and followed it up. And I think 
one of the most interesting things about it was um, I guess how it sort of exposed the um, the machinations of the New York Times bestseller list. Um, yeah. I found that really, really interesting. But tell us all about it, Valerie. I know that you want to share. Well, the book is called Handbook for Mortals and it's by a YA author, a young adult author, who hadn't really it's – it's a debut author by Lan, Lani Saram, Lani Saram. Uh, and from it's from the publishing arm of the website Geek Nation, and they the, the, it's a debut author hadn't ha, didn't have a track record didn't have that much of a presence to speak of, but yet it got onto the New York Times bestseller lists, and that's pretty huge. It's that's one of the most prestigious uh, lists that you can be on, right? And for a few hours, it was there at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And people were wondering, who, what, really, you know, never heard of them. Usually it's people that you've heard of, that there's been buzz, that they climb up the bestseller list or they're, they're, they've already had a track record and that's why everyone's keen to to get the book. So it's a little bit strange and some people did some digging and mm. basically found that you can essentially, and, and this is not, uh, big news, I suppose, in that you can um, gamify lists or you can influence lists. Lists and people influence lists by making sure all their publicity is in one concentrated period, so that everyone buys it at that time and they push the book to higher up on the list. Or they influence lists by putting on, making sure they do heaps of author appearances in a period. Or they incentivize people by saying, if you buy now, you'll get XYZ, whatever. And so it's not surprising, supposedly, that uh, that that you can influence lists for sure. That's 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 um, pretty normal these days, especially for savvy publishers and savvy writers. But this particular um, uh, story, um, it was on the Pajiba website, which then that story. It got traction and was reported in The Guardian. It was reported in the LA Times. Um, and it says here on the Pajiba website that YA writer and publisher Phil Stamper raised the alarm bells on this novel's sudden success through a series of tweets, noting Geek Nation's own low, tra- low traffic, the inability to even buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and it's out of nowhere relevance. <laughs> so it's just it's a fascinating read, and we will put your um, we will put the link in the show notes, which you can find on so you want to be a But the other thing that says that this um, uh, story says is buying your way onto the bestseller list is not technically illegal, nor is it that hard if you know how. Many mm. conservative publishers have found success through bulk buying books, then giving them away as, say, subscriber gifts if you sign up to Newsmax or the like. The thing is, usually the New York Times make note of this and include this as a footnote of sorts to the list. Here, there's nothing. Pulling this kind of trick is hard to conceal, but here it's especially glaring. Uh, 
Mm. Interesting. It was interesting. And I think the other interesting thing about it is if you have a look through Phil Stamper's um, Twitter thread, and there is a very long and involved thread that's involved with this, um, they actually, um, there's a couple of tweets and things there where booksellers have responded to him or they have done some research and they've got anonymous booksellers have responded. Um, there's also, uh, you know, DMs and various things. And one of those is actually um, is actually reported in the story that we will link to in the Pajiba story um, where someone had DM'd him and said, yes, I work at a bookstore and we had someone call and ask if we were a New York Times reporting store and then they placed a bulk order for the handbook. So basically the way the New York Times um, list works is that they – it's mostly independent booksellers um, and they have a whole network of them and those they, they, they base their, their sales on the sales at those particular shops and technically no one's supposed to know which shops those are. Um, mm. So this person has rung up and asked um, and then if, if they said, yes, we are, then, then they have placed a bulk order at those stores. And um, and then there's a whole lot of other stuff in there about the technical, the technicalities of placing orders. And then if the publisher can't actually fulfil the order, the order is 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 merely cancelled. So the person never has to pay for the books. But the numbers mm. on that particular day and that particular week stand. So um, it's a really like someone's put an awful lot of thought into yes. into making this happen. Um, and, you know, I think it's an interesting thing. And and, and I, the other thing I find fascinating about it too is that the YA blogger kind of world is, is a very – it's a very kind of loud and close-knit and, and sort of quite, you know, inf- like they – it's a very closely related sort of group. So to do it, to do it in this particular genre – I mean, not that YA is a genre because, of course, it covers a whole lot of areas, but to do it in this particular sector of the market is also a really interesting thing because um, it's the kind of sector of the market where if if it goes wrong, it's going to go horribly wrong as it has in this particular instance because it's such a a widely – they have so many bloggers and so many, you know, very outspoken authors and, um, yeah, it's a really interesting sector of the market to have chosen to – try to game basically yeah i wonder if they regret it now because it has been removed now from the new york mm. times bestseller list and i wonder if uh lani is now regretting being involved in such a thing well i don't know it's, it's an interesting thing i don't know if it would have resulted in sales or not in the sense that i would never have heard of handbook for mortals had no. it not been for this particular you know thing will people buy it just to see what all the fuss is about maybe they will i, I don't know mm. so it's who knows what they i don't actually yeah I, i'm not sure what the actual point of it all was i mean the point of it was publicity is it yes. that whole thing of any publicity is good publicity? I don't know. I don't well, know. Well, and I guess the point of it is to be able to call yourself a New York Times bestselling author even if you were that for yeah. only a few hours. Yeah. And I think that that's the whole point of there are people who are very, very um, sophisticated in their book marketing and a great example is Tim Ferriss who has been, who, you know, is a New York Times bestselling author. But one of the very clever things that he did, and you may agree or disagree with uh, his approach, but this is certainly approach. I remember when The 4-Hour Body came out. So Tim Ferriss wrote The 4-Hour Work Week 
and the four hour body and of the four hour chef and 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 recently tools of titans uh but i remember when the four hour body came out he had and i believe he's done this with his other books as well but i i distinctly remember that that uh when it came out he he times it to um, make sure that everyone buys in a in a very very confined period, so that you get a massive order, a bunch of orders in that period, and therefore you go into the York Times bestseller list, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone's buying at the same time instead of being spread out over several months. I mean, sure, people buy it in the months ensuing, but he concentrates his marketing efforts so that everyone buys at the same time to the point where. If you buy, and I I don't have these numbers right, but um, but by way of example, if you buy say five books, he incentivizes you by saying, and he will give you this. If you buy, you know, a uh, hundred books, he incentivizes you by saying, I will send you this. And mm. I know that he had three packages of twenty thousand books. So if you bought twenty thousand books, that's a lot of books. Yeah, that's a lot. That's of a books, lot of books. Yes, and a lot of money. But if you bought 20,000 books, he would um, speak at one of your events and he charges quite a high speaking fee and he would speak, you know, at one of your events wherever. And I do recall one of the incentive prizes in a sense for one of the packages was you got to go on a holiday with him. <laughs> so- Seriously? <laughs> wow. Yes. Oh, look, there's been, like, I think the other thing to, to note too is like, I mean, there's been a lot of questions over the years um, re- regarding Amazon's bestseller lists and, you know, the way that people kind of game getting onto those and the algorithms. And there's a lot of discussion, particularly in indie publishing circles about how to best use, um, you know, use the Amazon algorithm to get your book up to the top. And I mean, that was one of the reasons why people used to make the book free, you know, for a while there as well, because, you know, that number of downloads pushes it up. But now Amazon actually has two lists, one for free and one for paid, you know, just to kind of, you know, make make it very clear that that's what's happening. Um, yes. So, look, yeah, I guess it's like anything. It's buyer beware and have a look at what you're buying and why are you buying it and, you know, why do you want this book? Do you want this book because everyone's talking about it? Do you want it because it's a bestseller? You know, what is the reason that you want to make this purchase? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm just looking now that he did have a 10,000 book package. Um, This is Tim Ferriss. And these are the things you got if you you bought 10,000 books. Um, You got to sail across the Atlantic (laughs) with Tim Ferriss. You got... um, because uh, 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 it's a four-hour body, this thing where you got full body testing, where you could, where you got in te- testing for genetics, nutrients, and hormones, you got a personal portrait painting, <laughs> a watercolor portrait. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> by by an artist uh, who has been displayed in galleries throughout the United States, you got VIP access to Tim's next party. Value priceless. <laughs> See, there are very few people that could even offer the kinds of incentives that he can. You know, like you need you need a book as successful as the Four Hour Workweek to be able yes. to afford any of this stuff. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Well, anyway. he doesn't have to pay for any of them. I'm quite no. certain. So, because no, uh, I've 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 met somebody who um who was on the receiving end of one of his requests, um, 
to provide certain prizes. And, um, yeah, he's very persuasive. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Move Tell me on. what else have you got for us, Val? I have a link um, from um, Woman's World. <laughs> and I like this because right. it's called, it's, it's a subject close to your heart, Al. It's called right. How to Find Time to Write. And I thought it had some good tips because, not as good as your tips, of course, (laughs) but I think one of the things that it says is, first of all, yes, set aside some time to write every day, but we don't all have the time to set aside time to write every day, you know, like a a chunk, like a block. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the other thing it says, which you believe in it and I 100% agree with, is learn to write in snatches. Mm. And it says, don't ever think that it's not worth sitting down to write because you've only got 15 or 20 minutes. And it's so true. If you're sitting waiting for the kids to be picked up, you have some minutes to write potentially or waiting at soccer or, you know, at ballet or whatever. So I think that some people think that it's not enough time, they can't get into the zone, and I just say you just need to train yourself. You just need to make yourself. Um, so I put up a post last uh, last Friday because, of course, you know, I'm doing write a book with Al, hashtag write yes. a book with Al, um, which is, you know, bumbling along nicely and and there are people doing amazing things, um, you know, who have got, you know, 25,000 words, who have finished their novels, who have done amazing things. I I am kind of, as I suspected, bumbling along, as I said I was going to because it's been a busy month, but I'm at about, oh, I don't know, 15,000. I should be around the 20,000 mark by the end of the month, which is you know, 20,000 more words than I had on August 1, and I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but I was writing at soccer training because, you know, mm. I I spend a lot of time, you know, I honestly think that there should be some kind of payoff for parents that if you watch mm. training, there should be some kind of fitness or weight loss involved in just oh, being. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. I don't understand why it doesn't work that way. But anyway, um, so I was at soccer training, which is, you know, one of my most exciting moments of my week. And I was sitting in the car and I managed to get, uh, I think, 560-something words down. And um, I was working on my iPad with my Logitech wireless keyboard, which I know yeah. you also have one of those as well. And, yes. um, and I popped this photo up and and uh, on my Facebook page and, and this enormous debate ensued in the comments as to what was the best, you know, what was I using and what did other people use and how did you, you know, write on the go and what was the mm-hmm. program I was using because I just, I just put a little photo up of the of the actual screen. And um, so just to clear it up, I was writing in Evernote, um, which mm. syncs across all of my devices, yeah. um, which we've discussed uh, in a couple of different episodes uh, with my Logitech keyboard and my iPad. Um, But then, and I'm sorry, I don't actually remember who this was. um, Somebody mentioned that they had a roll up years ago. And I, and I was just like, wow, a roll up wireless keyboard that they use with their, just with their iPhone, with their iPhone seven. So you don't actually even need to take anything particularly special with you. As long as you've Mm. got your little roll up keyboard, which is no bigger than your actual phone itself. So if you could keep it all in a pouch or whatever, you could keep it all together yeah. at all times. Um, and they were using that. And um, 
And I, somebody, I think it was Rebecca, actually went out and got herself one like almost immediately and showed a picture of it and was all very excited by herself with her new um, keyboard. So I think, you know, the thing to remember with it is we, we kind of make a lot of reasons why we can't do stuff. I don't have my, oh, I haven't got my laptop with me or I don't have yeah. a pen or I don't have whatever. I think it's really easy these days to set yourself up to have a mobile writing office, um, yep. you know, to be able to write wherever you are. And the joy of it is you don't even have to do it in an old-fashioned notebook and then retype it later. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You can basically just bang it into your phone and then, mm. you know, either sync it or email it to yourself or whatever, and you never lose track of where you are in the manuscript. And it's just, um, it, you know, it's just genius from that perspective. So writing in those snatches of time becomes so much easier. Like it's 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 a it, all the things you need are available to you. Um, yeah. It's just a matter of choosing the the actual um, setup that works best for you. And, yes, it was Rebecca who got the keyboard and is now using it on her phone, and it was suggested by Graham and Marinda Young, um, who are regular commenter or, or who is a regular commenter on my page. So um, I think, it. you know, have a look around at what's available to you and, and think about what might work for you because this is the other thing. Like, I don't know that a that a roll-up keyboard and a phone would work for me. I, I do like the feel of at least it all being connected. I, I'm very old-fashioned. You know I'm a Luddite at heart. Um, yeah, I'm such a Luddite. But, you know, but look for the setup that works for you. And if it's a laptop, then so be it. You know, just whatever you can do that you can get yourself sort of on the move with your writing so that you can do it when you're sitting there with that wasted time. I mean, not that watching your child train at soccer is wasted time ever, <laughs> But, you know, you don't have to be watching them for the whole hour is all exactly. I'm Exactly. They could yeah. be on the bench at some point. Yeah, they could be. And I think I'm going I'm to try that roll-up keyboard because I used to have a roll-up keyboard, um, but it 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 didn't it, it didn't work well for me. But that was a, few, a couple of years ago. So mm. technology has probably improved since then. And I will check that out now because what I have found uh, has certainly been that in the past – places where I used to take my iPad, I'm now only taking my phone, but I take a wireless keyboard, but it's not roll up. And so I'm, and so it can be a little bit bulky, but still it's, it, it still works fine for me. But I'm interested to try the roll up keyboard because that will mm. take up even less space. Cause I do find that I can write very, very long things on my phone using Evernote. So Oh, I, so do I, like all the time. But also, um, it, so there's a picture of it in the comments on my Facebook page if you want to have a little look at it, Val. It looks like a, it's a full size. Oh, like yeah. it looks like something you could type very fast and very loud on. So I think it might push it. Because I bought a foldable keyboard off eBay and it was it's really cute except that the keys aren't quite all in the right place. So oh. it doesn't quite quite work for me unfortunately mm. anyway uh i'm gonna try the roll up one but anyway uh this post which we'll put in the show notes at so you want to be a writer.com.au is from woman's world but if you want a really comprehensive fantastic blueprint on how to make time to write then check out al's course 
called exactly that, How to Make Time to Write. And it's fantastic. It really gives you a very clear outline on the steps that you need to take to carve that time into your regular life, regular day. Al is one of the busiest people I know. So if she can find time to write all the 50 million things that she does, then you certainly can as well. And part of that course is the fantastic 30-day writing boot camp, where if you follow the instructions, and they're all very, very doable, you will end up with 10,000 words at the end of the 30 days. And you can start that boot camp at any time. You don't have to start it as soon as you enroll. So find out more at writercenter.com.au slash time. So let's move on to our next uh, link, which is, I thought this was quite interesting. Um, and it's from the Readsy blog and it's called Eight Character Development Exercises to Help You Nail Your Character. I think this is really cool and I think that it's – I'm the sort of person though who would kind of get stuck or have so much fun doing the exercises as a way of procrastination (laughs) 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 instead of – Yeah, instead of actually getting on with the story. But I do believe that these exercises can be useful to help you know your character's better. And the better you know your characters, the more those little nuances can appear that really, really bring them to life. So one of the ones that I like is um, it says play the game of truth or dare with your mm. character. Um, you, you know the game truth or dare, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So um, and, and <laughs> I think we all do. Character, <laughs> make your character answer truth or dare because that gives you an insight into into them in terms of their choice but also in terms of the their response to to the truth or how they execute the dare also exercise to put them through the ringer so put them through a difficult situation put dilemmas in front of them which i think is 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 a good one but also they've got this one called um hashtag tbt which is you know throwback thursday mm. and that is to to throw back to a significant point in their life and write about that. Now, remember, none of these things have to appear in your ultimate story. They are for you to get to know your character better and they may end up, little bits of them, um, in your final story, but they certainly contribute to the little things that can just give your character the edge. You know what I mean? Mm, absolutely. Mm. I mm. kind of like the Gatsby method, I have to say. Yes. Um, which is uh, described as exercise five, the Gatsby method, um, where we meet the great, in the great Gatsby, we meet the novel's eponymous character. We hear of him before we actually meet him. So Nick Carraway, yes. who is, of course, the narrator, attends one of Gatsby's famous parties because he wants to meet Gatsby, but it takes a while for Nick to find him. So, and during this time, he becomes privy through a, you know, the through different conversations and things that he overhears to a lot of information about Gatsby. So we get a sense of what other people think of Gatsby before we ever actually meet Gatsby. And we don't know what's real and what's not, because of course, we all know that most of what other people think about anyone is all based on hearsay and innuendo. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's, you know, and one impression or, you know, it's a it's a really interesting thing. So you get to kind of understand a, a character in context um, through hearing what other people have to say about him or her. So 
um, the suggestion here to give the Gatsby method a go is that you write a scene in which your character is only present through descriptions of him or her by other people, conversation about your character. So I think that's a really interesting approach. That is a really good one because they do say, don't they, that your reputation is what people say about you when you're not in the room. You're not in the room. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What is the reputation of your character? All right, so just some interesting tips there which you can find. Um, We'll put that link in the show notes. It's from Reedsy on character development. It's a good one. Right, now our competition this week, our giveaway, which people really do win. They do. People (laughs) actually win them. People, real people. Yeah, real people. You'll see them in the Facebook group. So we have (laughs) – Two copies of The Choke by Sophia Laguna to give away. And she's the author of The Eye of the Sheep, winner of the Miles Franklin. Oh, how do I'm, I'm like not speaking properly. Winner of the Miles Franklin. I'm just still not speaking properly. Just, just have another crack at it. Third time lucky, babe. Winner of the Miles Franklin Literary Award. <laughs> She's also Sophie Laguna. She's not Sophia. Yes, sorry, sorry. You're having sorry, a shocker. Sorry. So I'm having. A, I'm not. I'm inarticulate today. I'm inarticulate. Sophie. Oh, the word Laguna, of the week is going to be a humdinger. <laughs> so her latest novel is a brilliant and haunting novel about a child navigating a dark world of male power, guns, and violence. Ooh. So the competition closes on the fourth of September. And go to writercentre.com.au slash win in order to enter the giveaway. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, are we ready for the word of the week? <laughs> well, I'm just seeing geckos out there now, so I don't know what to say. I'm so ready now. So, so ready. Okay, so you think that the word lentil, as in L-E-N-T-I-L, lentil, is like, you know, the food, right? Mm. It's a pulse. Yes, a pulse. pulse. Well done. You know know your food. Oh, I'm all over it, yeah. Well, what have lentils got to do with your eyes? Oh, I don't know. Are they like carrots? Are they they full of beta carotene and they make us, (laughs) you know, see better? Vitamin D? I don't know. What? (laughs) Well, no. Um, Well, maybe they do, but, well, it's the word lens, as in, yes, like the lenses in your eyes or your contact lenses or the lenses in your spectacles, your glasses. Um, That comes from the Latin word for lentil or lentil seeds, as in the ingredient you find in lots of vegetarian restaurants. And that's because the shape of the lentil seed, and obviously lentils have been around for, you know, What's the next thing up from centuries? I don't know. Millennia. Eons. Yeah, millennia, yeah. And that's because the shape of the lentil seed is similar to that of the lens in your eye. So, the, len- the yeah, that word, lens, in your eye comes from the lentil seed word. There you go. Interesting, huh? me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you can all sleep. <laughs> oh, I think it's going to keep me awake for all that bit of excitement. <laughs> All right, let's move on then to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got? Ah, we have, well, this was a great one. I've got to say I really enjoyed this interview. So I interviewed Gary Disher, who is one of Australia's most 
you know, acclaimed uh, literary authors who also writes mm. crime novels. He also writes children's novels. He also writes historical novels, but he also writes history textbooks. Like the man is a writing machine from what I can gather. And um, we actually talked about his writing process and we talked about a whole range of different things. And it was a very, very, and he has, I've got to say this, he has one of those sonorous writer voices that just makes him sound like he should be on the BBC or something. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this interview with Gary Disher. Gary Disher is one of Australia's best-known authors. A full-time writer since 1988, he's published 50 books, general literary novels, crime thrillers, story collections, fiction for children and teenagers, anthologies as editor, creative writing handbooks, and Australian history textbooks. His latest book is Her, which is described as a dark, unsettling tale that will stay with you long after you finish reading. And having read it, I can definitely vouch for that. So welcome to the program, Gary. Thanks, Alison. Um, okay, so we're going to start by going way back into the mists of time to the beginning of your um, journey, as they say these days, as an author. You've been a full-time writer for a really long time now, but how did your first book come to be published? My first book was a collection of short stories. Uh, like many writers, I started with uh, writing short stories for literary magazines, and uh, the first story was I ever sent to a magazine called Overland, which is still in existence, was published, and about a year later I got a cheque for $100, so I thought, that's it, I'm a writer at last. But, uh, <laughs> the, the next few stories were rejected by magazines, but that's that's what it's like for new writers, uh, uh, knock, quite a few knockbacks and the occasional acceptance. Um, before that, of course, I was writing for school and university magazines, um, but I'd always wanted to be a writer, and... Uh, it was in my early 20s that I made a serious effort to get published. And uh, on the strength of about five or so stories and winning some short story competitions, but still not do- knowing what I was doing, I was awarded a creative writing scholarship to Stanford University in California. Oh, wow. And wow. that one thing was the best thing that could have happened to me uh, at that stage in my career. I a uh, very intensive workshopping environment. Um, I learned a lot very quickly. Um, I learnt what I was doing wrong. I learnt how to rewrite, which is a critical thing to learn, I think, uh, just as much as learning how to write as learning how to rewrite and how to edit. Um, and on the strength of earlier stories and the stories I wrote that year, I came back to Australia and um, put a collection together and was published by a little uh, press which has since gone bankrupt, but probably because of my book. Um, <laughs> And and that was the start for me. Uh, short fiction in literary magazines. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm when you saying, switched, sorry. I'm not saying that short stories is a springboard to novels. I think short stories um, are, is a distinct form in its own right and a very, very powerful and very artistically satisfying form. Uh, short stories should never be denigrated but um, I couldn't hope to make a living writing short stories. Mm. Uh, if I spent a month writing a short story and then got a free copy of the magazine at the end of it, I knew I wasn't going to make a living as a short story writer. Mm. 
So um, uh, that was the question I was going to ask you because uh, we have discussed short stories quite a lot lately because they are it, they seem to be making a comeback as a as a form, and there's a lot of competitions, a lot of short story uh, competitions around at the moment um, that we are encouraging our <coughs> listeners to you know have a close look at, but they are a very complete art form unto themselves. So, uh, what point did you make that decision to think, I, okay, I've I can't make a living as a short story writer. I'm going to write a novel. And what was the, like, was that a difficult transition for you to make? No, it wasn't a difficult transition. Um, It just was a logical transition in the sense that I felt that I'd mastered, well, obviously I hadn't mastered the short story form, but back then I thought I had because I'd had about 30 or 40 of them published. Um, and my next thing to try artistically was to write a novel. Um, and the first one I wrote was, uh, um, it got knocked back by a lot of publishers, but Al- Angus and Robertson said, if you'd care to rewrite it, we'd like to look at it again. Mm-hmm. And publishers never say that usually, so I, I went away and rewrote it and they published it. Um, but back then I was teaching creative writing, so I didn't, in a sense, need income from writing mm. but I, I did know overall that if I were purely a short story writer I, w- I wouldn't make a living from it okay so what has changed like you, you uh, you've been writing for a long time now you've been a full-time writer for a long time what has changed like what changes have you seen for you as a writer since those early days when you first started out um I've I was writing so-called literary fiction early in my career, um, but I started writing for children kind of by accident in the sense that one of the short stories that I had workshopped at that American writing writing class was for adults, and it won a short story competition and was published in a literary magazine. But I always saw its potential. I'm I'm often like this with some of my uh, earlier work, a character won't leave me alone, for example, or a situation. And I could see the potential in that short story uh, to be a children's novel. And uh, I wrote it. And it's uh, published in 1992 and it's never been out of print. Mm. So, um, And it won the Children's Book Council Award. So it introduced me to the world of writing for children and teenagers, which is a very rewarding world, I think. Mm. Uh, the world of the children themselves, teachers, librarians, parents, booksellers. The world of writing for adults is a, can be a bit backstabbing, I think, in, in some senses. <laughs> um, so um, I, I originally wrote her as a young adult novel, but my publisher insisted, no, it's more like a crossover novel. It, it's for a general readership, um, but there's no reason why young adults can't read it too. Uh, but another direction for me in my, in my writing was... Um, to write crime fiction because I love, I've always loved reading it. Um, perhaps we can blame Enid Blyton with the famous five and secret seven mm. stories when I was a kid, which were simple adventures about kids outwitting bad guys. Um, so I've always loved reading crime fiction and I was determined to, to write my own. So I suppose if I'm known at all in Australia, it's for the crime fiction, which has uh, dominated my last um, 10 or 15 years. Mm. As a writer, I also need to keep pushing at my boundaries, and uh, uh, that's how the, my latest book, Her, came to be written. Um, I didn't want to write yet another crime crime novel. Um, 
even though they're all they're always new to me when I start them. It's always a new challenge. But to write her was a different kind of challenge, different use of language, different way of thinking about characters and so on. Okay, so I, I do want to talk about her, but I just want to ask you this question before we get to that because I think it's quite an interesting one, is that you do write across a whole range of different genres and sections of the bookshelf. How do you decide what you're going to write next and what form a particular idea will take? Like how did you know that her wasn't a crime novel? Um, a few factors come into play. One is that I'm sometimes bound by a publisher's contract. Ah, yes. I, uh, usually I sign up for a two-book contract, and it roughly works out to be one book a year. But they, there, are, there are deadlines, and they like to publish me at a certain time of the year and so on. So um, I know that, okay, this year I better get cracking on my crime novel if I'm going to get, the, get it to them in time and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that comes into play, but I, sometimes too, just simply uh, a, a tiredness or a wanting, a, a wanting to have a change, to, to think about characters and settings in a different way. And even though there are crimes, if you like, in her, mm. it's not a crime novel. Uh, I tried several times to start the novel over the years. The first three pages, um, which I think have quite a strong impact, I wrote those probably seven or eight years ago and made several attempts since then to find my way into the story, but uh, all I had was a situation and it wasn't quite enough. Okay, so where did you begin with it? Because, you know, as you said, the first three pages are very, you know, there's a lot of, of impact in them. There's a lot of impact in the whole novel. Like it's one of those, I think, you know, very short, like it's not a particularly lengthy novel. Um, it's a very lyrical novel. Uh, there's, the language is beautiful. and it, But it leaves, it leaves quite a lot unsaid between the lines. There's a lot of in between the lines for the reader to actually, you know, do some work as well and I think that that also brings the the impact to it so where did you begin with it did you begin with the, the that situation of those first three pages or was there a character or a voice or what where did you start with it a few things came together um I've written I've got a master's degree in Australian history and I've written some history textbooks and I've used uh, some of the research I've done for the history textbooks for schools in some of my novels like Past, Past the Headlands is a World War II novel, for example. The Divine Wind is a World War II novel. Uh, and I sometimes, well, put it this way, I'm, I wasn't a very good historian in the sense that I could see the potential for novels and short stories in a lot of the stuff that I was unearthing in state libraries and archives and the War Memorial and so on. Um, my novel, Past the Headlands, grew out of a woman, woman's letter written in, um, in 1942 when she lived on a Kimberley cattle station and looked out her kitchen window one day and saw a group of Dutch people straggling across the paddock towards her. And they, they'd escaped the Japanese and their plane had crash landed on the beach near her cattle station. And I wrote it into my little history textbook, but I couldn't get that woman out of my mind. What's she going to do with these strangers? who suddenly turn up on her doorstep. So that's how the novel came to be written. And uh, the idea for her, um, I haven't even been able to find the, the the source since. Again, proof that I'm not a very good historian because I didn't write down the source. But I had read about um, 
a poor family in the back blocks of Victoria selling their three-year-old daughter to a travelling tinker and his wife. And the child was, um, well, it's a bit of a, 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 she was enslaved, really, in, in many senses. And that's all I knew about her, but she wouldn't leave me alone. I knew, I, I wanted to find out who she was, not in the, in the, not that actual person who she was, but the woman I was starting to imagine in my head, or the little girl, rather, who ages, I suppose, about 10 years in the course of the novel. Um, so I always in the back of my head was this little girl. I suppose she was growing into my imagination. I started to see her and hear her. I couldn't write it earlier until I could see her and hear her. I knew she couldn't be... Obviously, she's a victim, but she, ultimately she can't be a victim. True, she has to be a strong, indomitable character. And I knew I had to think about her until I knew her. And then I could see how she would respond to some of the challenges she, she faces. Yeah, and there are a lot of challenges. Like in the sense that like it's as, uh, you know, the story is as, as much a voice and character study as it is about, you know, exactly what goes on in the story. But you don't lose, there's a very firm hand on that plot. Like the reader is always wondering what's going to happen next you know, to this girl. Um, do you think that that's your crime fiction experience coming out, like in that sense of not losing track of the story even though you are, you know, really developing a, a character and a voice there? I think, you, I think you're right. I think I have developed techniques as a crime writer that, I, that can enrich fiction writing for anybody. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, carefully placed turning points, um, buried secrets coming to the surface, getting the reader to exercise their mind about the wrong issue, um, of delaying and withholding tactics. The reader badly wants to know, but your job as a writer and as a crime writer is to not satisfy that need. Um, partial and doubtful outcomes and that sort of thing. I think they are techniques I've learned as a crime writer and I think they have enriched my other types of fiction. Also, I love a quote from uh, Charles Dickens. He said, Make them laugh, make them cry, but crucially, make them wait. <laughs> um, in other words, you, you string the reader along. You don't spell, you don't spell it all out. You, uh, there's a kind of a frustration sets in. There is. Uh, and it also, uh, like, the thing that I found interesting about it is there's that sense of foreboding, like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole way through, like, this, you know, like what's going to happen here. Is that a difficult thing to sustain or does it come easily, like, once you get the voice of the book? Like, is sustaining that weight as a writer, is that, an, is that a difficult thing to do? Uh, I've learned to do it, I think. I still get it wrong sometimes, uh, placing the wrong emphasis or revealing information too soon. Uh, that's why it can help to have a good editor and it can also help to put a, a work aside for some time, a few weeks, and come back to it with fresh eyes. That always helps, I find. Mm. Okay. So what is your process for writing a novel? Do you, do you plan, are you a planner? Are you someone who plans it all out in advance or do you sort of catch yeah. an idea and start writing? No, I'm a planner and I should stress to new writers that there's no right or wrong about this. I happen to be a planner. A lot of my colleagues claim that they don't plan, uh, but I plan in minute detail. I spend weeks and sometimes months on the plan. But then again, I always trust my instincts, though. If, my, if halfway through the writing, or even earlier than that, if there's a little voice niggling in the back of my head saying, 
she's not going to do this, or he can't do that, or what if he did this instead? I always listen to that voice, which is my instincts, really. So always listen to your instincts if you have to be a planner, and don't be um, too bound to the plan. Okay. But I realised um, I needed to plan... Uh, the Irish writer Sean O'Fallon said that there are three elements you need at the start of the story. A character, a situation that the character is in, and a promise. And it's the promise for the reader and the writer of an answer further down the track. Mm. The, the, the need to keep writing, the need to keep reading. Um, and I started my all those early short stories and the two or three early novels, I started them like that. But when I started writing the crime fiction um, I realised that a different technique was needed, that I needed to stay a step ahead of the reader, I needed to tease the reader more, and uh, so I became a planner. Um, also, crucially, early in my crime writing career, I had a very good editor. Um, uh, he's based in the Blue Mountains, and uh, he told me about one of my the first chapter of my novel, he said, do you realise you've introduced 19 characters? Do we all? Do we need them all? Do we need them all now? Do they all deserve equal weight? Um, and he said, logically, you've got a character getting a letter on a Sunday. And that brought it home to me, the need to plan. And so part of my planning process is not only what event follows another, but what might be happening meanwhile somewhere else. And what season is it? <laughs> At five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, can my character drive from Melbourne to the Mornington Peninsula in an hour? No, because it's five o'clock on a Friday evening. Um, so I need to know where my characters are at each hour of the day and each day of the week. Wow. And that has got me out of an enormous amount of trouble uh, in terms of time logic. Do you use a spreadsheet to do that or how do you, like uh -huh. on a practical level, how do you organise that planning? Scraps of paper. <laughs> I, I, re, I recycle all my old manuscript drafts. So um, I write longhand. I can't can't think through the keyboard. So I write longhand in a blue blue biro. If it's a black one, the magic leaks out the window. Um, so uh, I, and I write the first draft of my novels on the backs of printed manuscript pages. Cause, and then I type it onto the computer editing as I go along. Goodness uh, But those same scraps of paper I use for my planning. And how long does it take you to, like given that you are writing longhand, like how, how on average, how long does it take you to write a novel that way? I can write very quickly and at the same time as I'm writing, I'm making notes to myself and asterisks and arrows and crossing out. So I'm writing and rewriting as I go along and I can do it quite quickly. So it's, I, I write about a book a year. Um, the writing process sets itself probably nine or ten months. Wow. Uh, I don't think in, in terms of needing to write a word limit each day. I write for a certain number of hours. Okay. Uh, and in that, in that period I might write five or ten pages or I might only write a paragraph. Wow. As long as I do that certain period of time each day. Is it as a routine? Like, do you get up at five o'clock every morning and do it? Like, is there a set sort of you know pattern to your to your writing routine? It's roughly from eight o'clock to one o'clock each day, uh, six days a week, not on Sundays. Wow! Uh, in the afternoons, I don't write, but I might type up manuscript pages or check things in the 
in the library or mow the lawn or whatever. <laughs> oh, you mean other things outside of your office. <laughs> yeah. um, now, you've worked as a writing lecturer in the past. What do you think that teaching other people how to write taught you about writing? Um, well, I, I never promised my students anything other than to show them techniques to so I would talk about characterization and effective ways to characterize somebody, um, the use of descriptive language or the use of thoughts or use of dialogue to, to characterize somebody and other uses of dialogue, how it can care, carefully place, it can reveal crucial plot information, for example, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of the first and the third person point of view and so on. Uh, and how important setting is, because I think a lot of new writers don't pay much attention to the setting, but I think it's one of the most vital elements. Um, so that's all I promised my students. And so I was helping the good writers to become better writers. I, at no stage did I ever promise to anybody that I would teach them creativity or to become writers if they weren't, if they didn't have some sort of spark. Uh, and the, so the, but they're all there because they... They had, the, they had the desire, but another thing I think they, some of them lacked was uh, persistence. Right. Uh, I've learned that over the years, the need for persistence. And is that persistence in, in learning the craft, persistence in getting yourself published? Like is that just persistence across the board or is there? Um... Yeah, it's persistence across the board, I think. Okay. Uh, I, I had every year, um, say in a class of 20, there would be someone there who I thought was a better writer than me. Mm. But every now and again, or quite often, too often, and it's a sad thing, they'd send a short story off at my urging and it would be rejected by a magazine perhaps and they would drop out of the class sometimes. Oh. Uh, uh, that's what I mean by persistence. Yeah. You, uh, part of that persistence is developing a thick skin, that it's not a judgment on you. It's, it can be many things that... Uh, Maybe the, maybe the piece you've written is weak, but maybe too the magazine is full of stories for the next year or uh, the wrong sort of person read it or whatever it might be. Mm. How do you feel about the promotion side of the writing job? Because, um, you know, I think a lot of people who would be starting out today, it's, it's, there's a lot more onus on writers now to actually promote as well and to kind of, you know, be a part of the process of, you know, getting the book out there. Is it something that you do only when you have a book coming out or do you kind of work to maintain a profile in between? I only do it when I have a book coming out. I'm not, I'm not a warm and cuddly person, I don't think. I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I can't hold a, an audience in the palm of my hand. I'm, well, put it this way, I'm often asked to give talks at local libraries and I love doing that because I've got a small group and they are keen readers and they're there to hear me and I can flourish in that sort of environment. But uh, in, other, in other ways, I just want to keep my head down. Um, I'm not a natural at publicising myself. Um, I willingly take part in anything that the publisher arranges for me. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think that's important. It's part of my job. But uh, in terms of, say, social media like, Twitter or Facebook or or other avenues of promoting my work, I don't do any of that. And I probably should. I probably would get more sales, but uh, 
I'm not interested. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I think it's important to know your strengths and weaknesses as as part of the process, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And what are you working on at the moment? Because I'm assuming that you, you know, given that you are essentially on a book a year, you'd be on, you'd be working on next year's book. Yes, uh, but I have a confession to make. Um, okay. I'm writing it. I'm doing it as a PhD. This novel. Oh. Um, I realised a few years ago um, that a lot of my colleagues, my peers who I met at writers' festivals, said they're doing the same thing because of the scholarship money. Yes. Because my, even though I've had 50-odd books published and becoming better known, my income is very, very low mm. and it's declining over the years. Mm. And uh, so I thought, well, if I did a PhD and wrote a novel as part of the PhD, but it's more than that, I also have to write an academic work of about 20,000 words about the creative process, but it has to draw on original research um, uh, and so on. I thought that I'm getting a novel out of it over three years, but I'm also exercising my mind in a different way mm. and I'm being supported by the scholarship. Yeah. Uh, so I am currently writing a novel called Miss Chance Creek and it's a follow-on from my novel A Bitter Wash Road, which is um, oh, yes. a, a crime novel published about two two years ago. So it was supposed to be a standalone crime novel, but the, again, as I said earlier in, the, in this interview, sometimes a character won't leave me alone. So I knew, I knew I wanted to write another story about this character. And I, I imagine that the, you know, you obviously have a very strong interest in re, uh, research is obviously something that you love, like given the Australian history um, books that you've written. So the research aspect of that PhD would probably appeal to you almost as much as the novel. <laughs> In a sense, yes, but it's a different kind of uh, it's a different kind of research from the history research where I was looking up facts and uh, uh, following leads of that kind. Um, this is um, literary theory, which is quite new to me. So um, I'm, I'm interested... The part of the um, academic work of the thesis is going to be about the use of setting in fiction writing um, because I am a strong believer in its in the vital sense that setting has. But it's not just a place for the action to take place. Um, there's more to setting than that. And I want to know what uh, other academics have said about the use of setting. And I've discovered there's a whole new world of literary theory called G... Um, geology and literature, or that's, I can't remember the exact term for it, but more and more in, uh, are geographers looking at literature as a, as a way of understanding place. Yes, because a sense of place is such an, I mean, it's, a, it's very, very um, uh, definite in her, um, you know, you, you know immediately where you are. And it's, I find it really interesting because, again, often I think people think that to, to really evoke a setting, you need to use a lot of words and a lot of description and a lot of, you know, a lot of detail, um, which I often find as a reader I will skim anyway. Um, yeah. But I find you're, with, particularly with this novel, you know, you are giving the setting in – uh, in not not a huge number of words, but but it's a very evocative thing, and I feel um, that's obviously a skill set that you um, have developed over a long time. But the the what do you think is the key to evoking that setting? Like, what do you what are some of the things that you consciously think about to evoke a sense of place? 
Okay. Uh, well, I, I learned a very, another very useful lesson I learned at that American writing class. I jumped in the deep end by giving a short story to be workshopped. It was about a young woman going into a pub and seeing her old boyfriend there and trying, it's a very internal story, uh, she's trying to decide whether she's going to hook up with him again or not. Right. To, you know, to cross the bar and go and talk to him or flirt with him or whatever it might be. And at the end, she decides she's not going to, that she's moved on in life. And that's, that's okay for a short story to do that. There doesn't have to be a car chase. Mm. Uh, just a subtle shift in the character's uh, viewpoint is enough for a short story. Um, but the, the story got pulled apart by the class and someone whose opinion I trusted because she'd had several stories published by the New Yorker magazine, she said, your writing suffers from sensory deprivation. Oh, oh. So I, I, was quite, I was quite crushed, but I determined to know what she meant. So afterwards we went to the pub and <laughs> she said that good writing makes pictures in the head. And she said that in your short story, it's probably there in your head, but it's not on the page yet. Mm. So, so the story's not in my head yet, she's saying. She said, I can't see what this girl looks like. Is she short, fat, um, blonde, etc.? sense of sight? She said, I can't hear the jukebox in the corner of the bar, sense of hearing. She said, I can't smell the cigarette smoke. She said, I can't taste the pretzels on the bar. She said, I can't feel the, the dampness of the uh, tabletop from spilt beer. So all the senses um, are useful if used carefully to bring a reader into the into a scene and now so that was a, the most useful writing lesson i've ever learned so now when i'm describing a place even a person in subtle ways i try to evoke one or more of the settings uh, sorry of the of the senses and uh, but partly too is my short story writing is get in get out don't linger <laughs> It's one of the uh, lessons that um, uh, the, ra the famous Raymond Carver tried to um, convey, get in, get out, don't linger. So when you do get in, it has to be as clear and as evocative and as succinct as possible. Right, which is excellent advice. And you have actually given us a whole lot of excellent advice here, but I am going to finish up by asking you the question that we ask every single person that we speak to, which is, Gary, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers? Uh, first, I'd say be a reader. Are you, in the 10 or so years that I taught creative writing, I would say a good 30 to 40% of my students didn't read. They wanted to write. They loved um, storytelling of some kind or other. Uh, thought or thought it might be a fine thing to write, but didn't read. I would, I would name authors that I thought might be well known, but they'd never heard of them, and uh, I realised that they weren't readers. It's the first thing to be a writer is to be a reader. Uh, I would also say, don't talk about writing. Write, um, even if it's, even if you don't feel like writing, even if it's junk. Uh, what the actual act of writing, uh, I think, unlocks more words, unlocks your brain, gets the words flowing eventually. And um, one I touched on before was persistence. Uh, uh, don't give up. Um, if you send a short story off and it's, or a poem and it's rejected by a magazine, don't see it as a rejection of you. Just keep writing. Um, 
that I think those three things I think are the most important. And they are all fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Gary. I know how incredibly busy you are and I know that you are working on many things as well as um, telling the entire world about her, which I think is fantastic. So best of luck with it and best of luck with your PhD and we really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Alison. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Stage 2 Creative Writing course, Advanced Fiction Writing Techniques, will help you apply proven methods to your own writing, taking your storytelling to a whole new level. With workshopping and practical exercises focusing on scene development, characters, climax and resolution, it's your perfect next step. Learn online over a few hours each week. You'll even get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash advanced. I'm so thrilled that we got Gary Disha on the podcast. Oh, look, so am I. And, you know, the the lovely thing about it too, I, you know, this is what gets me about authors, Um he's a pretty special author and he's done a lot of amazing things, but he's so generous. So I think that some of the stuff he had to say there, particularly about when we were discussing, you know, because one of the things that I find about a lot of literary novels, you know this, and my beloved friend Anna Spargo-Ryan also knows this because we discuss it at length, is for me um, I really, plot is important to me in a book and I often find Mm -hmm. with with literary novel, like, you know, and I'm, I'm calling capital L, literary novels here is that you know the the beauty of the writing is is most assuredly there but I sometimes find myself like diving around in oceans of words looking for the story and Mm. the thing I think about uh Gary's new book Her is that the story is most definitely there and the sense of waiting for the other shoe to drop and the sense of menace in the story. It's not a crime story on any level um but that feeling of of the plot being still central to what's actually occurring is is very much in evidence, even in the, you know, because he writes, it's a very, in many ways, a spare sort of a novel. Um, mm. It doesn't require a million words to set a, to set a picture, um, you know, to set the scene. And we talked again that the conversation we had there at the end about how important setting is and, and, it, and its kind of ability to be that additional character in your story and the tips he had for that and the tips he had for the, the, you know, uh, keeping that plot sort of turning, even though it's not necessarily the central feature of your story, um, just invaluable. This is the thing I love about, I mean, seriously, people, I'm only doing these author interviews for myself. (laughs) (laughs) I just learn every single person I talk to, every single author I talk to, I learn something new from and I take it on board and I go away and I think about it and I I try to think about how I can use it to make my own writing better. And it's just, I just would like to say thank you again, as we approach our 200th episode, Mm. thank you again to every single author who has given us their time because it's an Mm. education for all of us. And I think it's so incredibly special. I, I, you know, I, I really value it myself. So there you go. That's all. Absolutely. Look at 
I'm getting quite emotional here. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, and uh, hopefully there'll be another 200 more. And, of course, uh, just a reminder, please, we'd love you to do our survey so that we can find out uh, what you are enjoying and what you'd like to see more of. So please do fill that in and get your wonderful reward of $20, <laughs> um, which is kind of like 200. It's not 200 cents. It's like 200 10 cents? No. <laughs> anyway, you can do that at Seriously, Writer Centre. Oh, let's not get into maths. No. I'm okay. you. You should be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, I should. Yeah, let's, come on. Uh, so, so you can do the survey at writercentre.com.au slash podcast survey and we'd really appreciate it. In the meantime, Al, where do we find you online? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com, which has got a fat Oh, I forgot to mention this. I've had a facelift. <laughs> oh, have you? Was there Botox uh, involved? Uh, well, it's a, there's a little bit of filling going on over there, but no, not, actually just lots and lots of white space. It's very beautiful. Um, what I've done is I've brought the Mapmaker Chronicles into the site. I had the mapmakerchronicles.com. I brought it into the alisontate.com home. Um, you can still use the same mapmakerchronicles.com URL, but I'm just trying to bring my whole world into one place um, after yeah. many years. I mean, you know, eight years of being fractured all over the internet is probably enough. Um, so anyway, sorry, I got distracted. You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me at on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, just connect with me on Facebook. Easiest way is to find me in the um, uh, podcast community Facebook group So and connect with me there. Um, so just go to So You Want to Be a Writer podcast, podcast community, just search for that, and you'll find both Alison and I in there. And, of course, you'll find the show notes to everything that we've spoken about at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.